described by many as the creator of the field of study known as late antiquity. And so, with that introduction, we bring you Peter Brown for our last talk. Thank you very much. Um, have you all got copies of the bibliography that I handed out? Please reassure me. I can't offer you a, a PowerPoint. I must point out that this bibliography is the record of my own self-education as coming into this subject as a complete outsider. So I want to share a few stages of this self-education with you this afternoon. And I think one should begin by realizing that Silk Road's been known as a place of mirages. And there are two academic mirages which account in large part for the fascination which the Silk Route holds, both for scholars and for the general public. Now, the first mirage is, of course, that largely as a result of the spectacular discoveries of manuscripts and artifacts in the deserts of, of Xinjiang at the very beginning of the 20th century, the Silk Road has been associated with a remarkable eastward expansion of forms of art and religion whose origins lay in the long familiar world of Greece and Rome. Therefore, to talk about the Silk Road in late antiquity is not simply to talk about a region in a given chronological period, from roughly 300 to 700 in the Common Era. It's to talk about the last and the most mysterious mutation of the classical world that took place in an environment as distant from the inhabitants of the Greco-Roman Mediterranean as the face of the moon. It's not to talk about Silk Road in late antiquity, but about late antiquity in the Silk Road. For what Sir Aurel Stein discovered in the dead cities of the southern reaches of the Taklamakan Desert in the first decade of the 20th century, what Albert Lecoq discovered further to the north around the Turfan Oasis at much the same time, were fragments of a world where Greek forms of art that had originated on the eastern marches of the Empire of Alexandria in modern Afghanistan and northern India, had undergone a last and magical sea change. In the sands of the Taklamakan Desert, explorers came upon distant echoes of Hellenistic um, elegance, now lingering in the soft lines of Buddhas, of Apsaras, and of those innumerable plump cousins of Dionysus, scattered along a trail that led from Gandhara in northern India through the passes of the Pamirs and along the foot of the Himalayas to Dunhuang and thence to China. 
it was a real revelation for them. In the words of Sir Aurel Stein, to be greeted once more at these desolate ruins far away in the heart of Asia by tangible links with the art of Greece and Rome seemed to efface all distance in time and space. He would have loved meeting Ying Pan Man. It's easy to understand the almost uncanny thrill of this discovery. For those who study it, don't forget in the Mediterranean and the Middle East, the real magic of the study of late antiquity itself consists in watching the ancient world of classical Greece and Rome changing under one's eyes, under the impact of new ideas, new religious forces, new horizons. If that is so, then the mutation of the Hellenic culture of the Greek colonies of Afghanistan, as this culture encountered the Buddhism of northern India reached across the high Karakoram towards China was the most thrilling and the most unexpected mutation of all of the familiar classical gene. For persons such as Lecoq and his advocates in Berlin at the early 20th century, the Silk Road was always far more than a road. It was a missing link in the cultural history of Eurasia. In the words of a memorandum to the Prussian Ministry of Culture written in 1914, we can now recognize the threads that run from Greece and Rome through Persia and India, running out as far as China, Tibet and Japan. West and East are no longer cleft by the gaps that we had previously had to postulate. Here I recommend number one on my bibliography, Suzanne Marchand's German Orientalism as an Age of Empire, golden pages on this topic. I think we must bear this thrill in mind when we, preach, when we approach, of course, the other mirage of the Silk Road. That is the view of the Silk Road as a purely commercial highway, Here we should note that the first person to coin the term Silk Road, Seidenstrasse, though he usually used the term in the plural, Seidenstrassen, Ferdinand von von, um, Richthofen, was a geographer. His concern was not with rare mutations of art and culture, but with sheer space, geographical space, and with a conquest of space that seemed to echo and predict the modern shrinking of the globe. As a result, the Silk Road quickly settled down, at least in the popular imagination, as the ancient equivalent of the Trans-Siberian Railway. Goods were imagined to whiz briskly up and down the Silk Road between Rome and China, But, as on the long stretches of the Trans-Siberian Railway, little thought was given to the sheer diversity of the regions through which this railroad passed. 
And what I'd like to do this afternoon, therefore, is suggest what we might gain by stepping aside from these two potent mirages. Instead of seeing the Silk Road either as a fascinating laboratory of exotic mutations of Western forms of art and religion on their long ray across Eurasia, or as a corridor of trade in a more modern manner, I'd like to attempt to catch the Silk Road in the heavy gravity of the distinctive societies from China through inner Asia, Iran to Byzantium, through which it passed in the late antique period. I'd like to amend the title of my talk even, from between Rome and China to something like Rome and China and everything in between. Now, I've been encouraged to do this by recent publications, which each in their different ways have, as it were, folded the Silk Route back into the living texture of the societies that produced it. Here I wish to refer in particular on number two of my bibliography to the work of Jonathan Scaff on Chinese relations with the nomads of Inner Asia, soon to appear as Eurasian entanglements, Suichang China, China and its Turco-Mongol neighbors, of Etienne de la Vessière, Les Marchands Sogdiens, now translation as Sogdian traders, of Shinru Liu on the relations between India and China and on the role of Buddhism in the circulation and valorization of silk, now summed up in her recent synthesis, The Silk Road in World History, and much, much closer to my own turf, the recent book of Matthew Kanipa, the Two Eyes of the Earth, Art and Ritual Kingship Between Rome and Sasanian um, um, Iran. Now, to put it very briefly, what emerges from these studies is the inextricable connection between what we call commerce, the movement of goods, with politics and state formation throughout Eurasia in the late antique period. It seems to me, for instance, that the message of Etienne de la Vessière's splendid study of the internal history of the Sogdian merchants is that he's placed these merchants back into the structures of Sogdian society, both in Sogdia itself and in Inner Asia and China. He likens the Sogdian merchants to the Italian merchants of the later Middle Ages, but for a former Western medievalist such as myself, this is to open a sociological can of worms such as delights historians of medieval and the medieval Italian republics. As in medieval Italy, the merchant identity of the Sogdians, which seemed so straightforward to outsiders, immediately becomes entangled like that of the Italian merchants in their identity as nobles, as the heads of city republics, and as leading figures in frontier societies where nomads and Han Chinese encountered each other. 
These were the Sog Dunes known to the Chinese not for their commercial but for their political know-how, cruel and perspicacious. It was they who acted as political advisors to the Turkish Qur'ans and as mediators between the world of China and Inner Asia. In the same way, with the study of the workings of Chinese imperial society and its relations with the nomads have sort of engulfed silk in a fiscal and diplomatic system from which commerce developed not for its own sake, but in the first instance as a highly suspect commoditization, one might almost say a privatization, of articles that were thought to belong more properly to the world of diplomacy, not of commerce. Silk and similar items were as central to the flow of power and prestige in eastern Eurasia as is the movement of enriched uranium between modern societies. For Sogdians to attempt to buy bales of silk and to redistribute them for gold, for, for gain, simply proved to the Chinese that they were low fellows who had come from a world devoid of kings and hierarchy. Silk entered the world of Inner Asia, not to be traded so much as to add glory to the Ka'ans and their dependents. What reached the West was a mere trickle from the vast stores of goods that remained in Inner Asia to fill the tents and tombs of nomadic overlords. State formation, not trade, was uppermost in the horizons and calculations of the rulers of the, of the steppes. Once embraced as an example of an almost miraculous flow of goods in the modern manner from one end of Asia to the other, the Silk Road has in many ways been demodernized. The movement of silk is swallowed up by ancient needs the need to pay taxes, to conduct diplomacy, and to show glory. Now, with this, the social historian of the ancient world usually heaves a sigh of intellectual self-satisfaction. She has, he, he or she has yet again nipped a seductive anachronism in the bud, and the ancient economy is put back in, in its place in, among the primitives, sternly denied any pretensions to modernity. I'm not sure in that side of this debate, but what I think we have to look at is what does this situation actually mean? Now, here I suggest that we look more closely at the substances and at the circumstances of the interchanges with which the Silk Road has been associated in the late antique period. This involves, first and foremost, an imaginative leap to capture what it meant to trade in luxury goods in the first place. Luxury goods were not only easy to move and expensive um, to buy, they were charismatic goods. They carried a charge of life-enhancing energy, delight, and majesty brought from the ends of the earth. 
to the mid-6th century Byzantine Cosmas Indicopleustes to go in search of silk was a fitting metaphor for the Christian's yearning for paradise. It was a sort of search for the ultimate out there. For the Chinese, by contrast, what we call the Silk Road could equally well be called the Road of Glass. Glass was not produced or eventually produced only in poor quality in China. It carried with it the magic of purity and transparency brought from the unimaginably far west. Not surprisingly, some of the most exquisite examples of late antique Middle Eastern glass to be discovered in China were found in a box of relics placed at the base of the great Famen pagoda in the Tang period, taken from the unseen western end of the earth, returned to the unseen along with the relics of, of the Buddha, They only emerged a thousand years later when the Great Pagoda was excavated in 1987. Here I recommend number three on my bibliography, Anjiao, when glass was treasured in China. Speaking of an analogous phenomenon, the dependence of the med- medieval West on spices, Paul, 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 Paul Friedman, in his delightful and learned book, Out of the East, Spices and the Medieval Imagination, points to the literal craving which was engendered in the upper classes of the medieval West by fantasies of spices taken from the very foothills of paradise. Spices did more than tickle your your taste buds. They brought with them from the distant Indian Ocean nothing less than the death-defying taste of paradise. Number four, Paul Friedman, Out of the East, a very good read. Now, it's important to recover the imaginative weight of such substances, but that isn't enough. What we have to imagine is their role in what Chris Bailey, writing of the commerce of Asia and Africa between 1750 and 1850, has called a moment of archaic globalization. Now, in this pre-modern pattern of globalization, great men and their women set themselves off against the all-pervasive drabness of ordinary life, whether in the village, in the city, or in the steppes, by by prizing Difference. Difference in goods, difference in learned servants, difference in women, difference in exotic um, 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 animals. I think, for instance, of the pair of male and female little dogs of Rome, 
probably miniature Maltese terriers whose plump forms appear duly mourned on gravestones in the Italy of Augustus that were offered as tribute by the king of Turfan to the Chinese emperor in 624. By such persons, such persons, Bailey says, were collectors rather than consumers. What they did was more than merely collect, though. The people, objects, food, garments, styles of deportment thus assembled changed the substance of the collector. They sought to capture the qualities of those rare goods by making themselves stand out in their own society as very rare because touched by the rareness of exotic goods. Number five on the bibliography. Now, when it came to the venues where such collecting of differences occurred with greatest intensity, we would be well advised not to wander into the local bazaar. We'd be much better placed to see the Silk Road in action at at summit conferences. This does not mean simply that vast sums, thousands of bales of silk on the northern frontier of China, mule loads of silver coins on the Central Asian frontiers of Iran, gold solidi and knock-off barbarian belts and swords complete with garnets from Afghanistan, manufactured at Constantinople, for the use of clients across the Danube, not that these did not change hands in the forms of subsidies and tribute, but there was more to it than that. The principal substances and modes of deportment that passed up and down the Silk Road were put to use to create a series of magical middle grounds, at once local and international, in which rulers and aristocrats met in an environment carefully constructed to be a world out of this world. Now here I would particularly recommend the work of Jonathan Scaff for Chinese in Asia relations and for Matt Kanipa for Sasanian Byzantine relations. What Jonathan Scaff has shown in his study of the diplomatic relations between the nomads of Inner Asia and the Chinese court is the remarkable degree of conscious juxtaposition between the local and the exotic, which occurred when Han Chinese, Sogdians, and nomads encountered each other. The strict Confucian view, of course, was that the Han only were capable of observing ritual, and the outer barbarians were, to put it mildly, ritually um, challenged. But this was not at all the case. The leaders of the great Turkic hegemonies of the late 6th and 7th centuries could be as punctilious as any Chinese. In 631, the Chinese Buddhist pilgrim Xuanzang professed to be surprised at what he saw at the camp of Tong Yabhu across the Tian Shan near the warm, near the uh, um, uh, Usuk Köl. 
even though he ruled over felt tents, his court, says Swan Zhang, had a noble beauty. Indeed, not to hold court with such solemnity was a danger signal. The lack of mutually intelligible ceremonials was both disorienting and frightening. The account of the embassy of the Catholicos Viroi to the camp of the, of the Khazars in 626, as described by, by, by Mofses Dashkuranzi, after they had descended unexpectedly from the northern steppes into the rich plain of Transcaucasian Albania, catches a moment of real fear in the face of an unreadable enemy. There we observed them, kneeling on their couches like rows of heavily laden camels, with their bellies like bloated goatskins. There were none of our customary cupbearers before them, no servants behind them, not even in the case of the king's son. Soldiers armed with shields and spears, however, kept careful watch. Such unceremonious scenes of naked power were rare in the steppes and in the relation between the great empires. Most encounters took place in a carefully constructed world in which motifs from the nomad and the settled world were combined. But, of course, this bricolage of d d differences was never limited to the conduct of diplomacy. Let me therefore end by suggesting that we view the theme of culture contact along the Silk Road in the light of such moments of deliberate juxtaposition of the known and the exotic, of which diplomatic history gives us the most vivid examples. For it strikes to me that the old debates on the nature of cultural contact between China and the nomad world, between inner Asian hegemonies and the settled populations, and far to the west between Byzantium and Iran, has been bedeviled by false models of cultural interchange. Influences appear to travel mindlessly from distant regions, they're observed or rejected on an organic, one might say even a sort of medical model. Byzantium catches oriental influences much as we would catch a common cold. But what happens if we see cultural contacts in terms of a process of archaic globalization in which Differences were valued in their own right and consciously set in place as markers of dis distinction. This would be particularly the case when the principal loci of contact were situations such as courts and diplomatic interchanges where juxtaposition was the name of the game. In these privileged environments, the skillful collage of elements from different cultures came together to create a world of its own. Palaces, tents, governmental centers at which these interchanges took place were never simply condensations of the central values of the host society. Far more, they were carefully constructed 
non-places. Those who moved against this backdrop were somehow made to seem a little out of this world. They were as distant from the average members of their own society as they were from the foreign world represented by their interlocutors. This impression, I think, is confirmed very well by the study of Matt Canipa on the artistic and ceremonial relations between Byzantium and, and Sasanian Persia. It's a study that challenges to take almost a cognitive approach to ask ourselves how we measure the psychological effect of deliberate transgressions of the normal environment brought about through the display of exotic motifs, substance, or bases. What did it mean for a Byzantine to meet in the church of St. Polyuctus in Constantinople Exquisite surfaces of marble carved in such a way as to make them look like Sasanian stucco work. What does it mean to know that there was a polo field in the imperial palace? What does it mean to sense almost subliminally the Hagia Sophia? triggered by motifs placed on the mosaic ceilings of its side aisles as a building swathed in robes of eastern silk. And last but not least, of course, to look at this pursuit of differences may throw some light on the fate of the religions of the silk. Buddhism, Nestorian Christianity, and Manichaeism. I will only take the example of Manichaeism. It's indeed remarkable that the lavishly illuminated manuscripts of a religion which, after all, once claimed St. Augustine of Hippo as a useful adherent were among the very first to be discovered in the oasis of Tufan. As one walks the empty streets of Zhaohe and Kocho, one realizes something of a sort of shudder that at a time when Charlemagne ruled in Europe, Manichaeism, known to most of us as the most bleak, the most furtive and the most fiercely persecuted Christian sect, in the later empire, was for some centuries the established religion of the Uyghur kingdom. Now, how did this Manichaeism fit in? Here, I think we can learn a lot from number six on our bibliography, the work of Xavier Tremblay, Pour une histoire de la Serrande. This offers a way into the strange world of the Manichaeism of the Uyghur Empire. De Tremblay argues that Manichaeism was there because, like many other exotic luxuries, it was different. Like the Judaism, patronized at roughly the same time by the Khazars in the western steppes. Manichaeism 
distinguished the Uyghur kingdom from its Chinese neighbors. It also distinguished the court of the um, Quran from its largely Buddhist subjects. Frozen into liturgical texts in a long dead Parthian, the Manichaeism of Turfan was a sort of Baroque religion. It was a religion of great ceremonies and opulent prayer books, perched on top of a largely Buddhist population, much as in the 18th century the Catholic court of Dresden ruled with brittle splendor over the overwhelmingly Lutheran population of Saxony. Manichaeism was a mark of difference, of difference quite as striking in its way as was the great golden tent of the Uyghur Karan, which perched on top of the citadel of his new city of Ordubaluk, otherwise a Chinese city, surrounded by an impeccably Chinese rectilinear wall. So what does all this add up to? Let me end by suggesting that these elements of an archaic globalization were brought to the fore by constant diplomacy and warfare, not by the invisible hand of the market that pulled goods along a silk road as if it were a modern commercial highway. These elements converged with particular vividness in the 6th and early 7th centuries so as to bring about what I would call a moment of rare intervisibility between the kingdoms that lay along and around the Silk Road. From one end of Eurasia to the other, the glory, the game of the day, was not the great game of large foreign policy or even large commercial policy. It was much more the game of the glory of the king. Byzantine and Persian ambassadors at the court of Ceylon would pull out of their pockets to display in the alloy and quality of their respective coinages the glory of their respective empires. It's interesting to note here that sort of dreams of a universal empire such as circulated in the Italy of um, Augustus and even in the 4th century, were quietly abandoned. Instead, Byzantines, Iranians, and even to a degree Chinese accepted a world of many kingdoms. But these kingdoms were now ranked, ranked in complex hierarchies. For the Christian Byzantine, for instance, Cosmic Indicopleustes, the Roman Empire was definitely numero uno. Its association with the birth of Christ ensured that, though often very, very beaten up, it would survive until the end of time. Persia, by contrast, was placed an honorable second by Cosmas for the three kings of the east who had worshipped Christ in Bethlehem had come from, from Iran. At Aksum, at the foot of the Red Sea, if we're to accept an early dating of the Ethiopic Kebra Nagasht, 
Byzantium was placed second after the orthodox monophysite Negus of Abyssinia, the descendant of King Solomon. At the great palace ascribed to Husro I and Oshivan at Tesiphon, three thrones were said to have stood beneath the great arch of the Tachikustro. These were prepared for three vassals of the king of kings, the king of Rum, of Byzantium, the king of the Turks, and the king of China, should they ever wish to pay court to their overlord. In China, even, gazetteers of the western lands reached out at this time, kingdom by kingdom, up to the walls of Constantinople. And the arrival of embassies from those distant lands, Maltese, terriers, and all, were duly noticed in Chinese official annals. This didn't last. It was the westernmost of these kingdoms, the Kaiser of Byzantium, the Kistra of Iran and the Negus of Aksum, who were the significant others to whom the prophet Muhammad was believed to have addressed in around 630 a famous set of letters. These kings were urged to submit to Islam or to face the consequences. In this sense, the game had changed. In the course of the 7th century, a universal religion impatient of the hierarchies of an ancient world order replaced the jockeying of courts that had driven a system of archaic globalization along the Silk Road. The kingdom of Persia fell. Byzantium was pinned to the wall for centuries. By the mid-8th century, Muslim armies had chased the Tang back across the Pamirs and had absorbed the merchant cities of Sogdia. The life of the Silk Road continued, but it was no longer the distinctive cultural, religious, and diplomatic life of a late antiquity all of its own that had been lived out with such great vividness along the Silk Road between 300 and 700 CE. Thank you.